Wadid Tencent and CDC invest $180 million into a South African fintech called TimeBank. Uh, one reason is that TimeBank have acquired 4 million clients in under three years, which is incredible when they're currently adding 150,000 more a month. Tencent, CDC and their majority shareholder, African Rainbow Capital, obviously think this hyperscaling is set to continue. But what is it about TimeBank's model that gave these investors confidence that the growth story will continue? I interviewed their CEO, Terry Kiran, as part of the Huawei Future of Finance series to find out. I hope you enjoy. I was looking in the newspapers uh, the other day and I think you've just hit 4 million clients. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've grown rapidly, right? We launched the bank about two and a half years ago. And as you pointed out, we already have 4 million customers. Large portion of those customers are active, which means they vibrant on our platform. They transact uh, regularly and they generate income for us. Yeah, So we've been blessed, you know, I think it's part of our business model. I showed you want to unpack that in a little bit. That has is, that is, uh, led to a winning formula. Uh, it's absolutely incredible. I mean, I don't want to offend anyone from a more traditional bank, but you know, if I think about how the existing banks, particularly in well, actually globally, it's not just South Africa, how difficult they're finding it to increase their customer base. In fact, how difficult they're finding it retaining their customers. The fact that you've been able to grow and build, you know, well, this must be what is it, one hundred and forty, one hundred and fifty thousand customers a month is absolutely exceptional. Now, I think the I don't know if uh, I don't want to put you on this, but my understanding is this makes you, it must make you one of the fastest growing digital banks in the world. We are. Look, you, you got to benchmark it properly, right? So if you compare us to digital banks that are further down in the maturity of their life cycle, we're still up there. But I think at this early stage of our life cycle, we're certainly growing faster than most of them did at this point in time, yeah. Yeah. Now let's let's start digging into this because I mean the reality is, although we say that this has happened in just under um, three years, Time Bank has been around a wee bit longer, and you've been involved with Time Bank and the genesis of it for a B. Where where did it all start? Yeah. Look, it actually goes back to two thousand and seven. I'd argue now, I won't bore you and your audience with the with the convoluted history. But what I often tell people is that I'm actually in my thirties. Uh, the reason I look this old and disheveled is uh, because I've been doing digital banking for this long. So, uh, and this was, you know, 2007 in South Africa is when digital banking was unfashionable. So myself, one of our co-founders and one or two others had the privilege of building the digital banking operation for one of the large South African banks. And what they gave us was it gave us incredibly hard but valuable lessons particularly around business model innovation. Fast forward, we, we then started the project. Um, I was part of the Deloitte corporate venturing team, which is called Project Ubiquity. Yeah. Um, this was probably in 2011. And effectively what we did there is we designed, built, and eventually wanted to run one of the mobile banking operations for, for MTN at the time. It turned out that we couldn't incorporate that business under Deloitte. Uh, and so we were left in a precarious situation where we either had to shut down the project or uh, we had to spin the business out of Deloitte. And I remember the conversation very vividly when what, who then became our two co-founders approached the team. There were about 20 people on this project. It was really important that they secured the team. And they said, look, leave the safety 
and the prestige of your employee uh, and join us. What we can offer you is one month's salary. That's all the security we can give you. And the interesting part of the story is that everyone put up their hand. And the reason they did that was two things. The one was the strategy was sound, but more importantly, everyone bought into the purpose. Mm. Uh, and that was to bring about systemic reform to the banking sector, starting with South Africa. So we continued on this journey as a standalone fintech uh, running mobile money. We also had um, a 50% JV of a regulated bank in Namibia. And then what happened, Commonwealth Bank of Australia, which was then the 10th biggest bank in the world, found us and eventually bought us. And we sold the business because we always had the aspiration of being a fully regulated, full-service bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the reality is when you are founder-led, uh, it's very difficult to fund a business model like that. What year um, was that when um, CBA p- purchased you? That was in 2015. Right. So we then had three years under, under Commonwealth Bank, who was very good to us. We would not have built what we built with, without them. But they ran into trouble in their home markets. Um, and part of their response was a consolidation and a simplification of their portfolio, particularly in emerging markets. And so we fell victim to that. But all's well that ends well. African Rainbow Capital uh, then bought the business from Commonwealth Bank and, and a few of us as management also, also took a stake in the bank. You know, so we've lived three lives, Colin. We've, we've lived a life as a fintech that was founder-led. We lived a, a life in this transition between fintech and fully regulated bank under the auspices of a large banking corporation. And now we live a life as a fully regulated, scaled retail digital bank, you know, with a diverse set of shareholders now. Yeah. And we've also had three names for what it was worth. And, and I think that, you know, there's a couple of lessons in here. You know, the, the, the first lesson is the power of purpose and what purpose can do, particularly in the darkest times. And, and the second lesson is that, you know, often as entrepreneurs, we, we, you know, one gets the perception that the road to success is linear, but it's not. It's an incredibly winding road, but having that conviction in the vision is important. So you might still get to Bloemfontein, but you might have to stop over at Kuruman and Kakamas for some burst tires. Mm. Was it easy to get uh, Rainbow um, to invest, you know, into? I mean, obviously, Patrick is um, heavily invested in, in some awesome organizations and companies and startups across Africa and South Africa, making a, a huge difference. I think they're also behind Rain, for example, challenging the telco market. Was it easy to get him and his team interested to go and, and assist with the buyout from CBA? I think we were, we were quite fortunate in that regard, uh, Colin, because at the time, African Rainbow Capital was already a 10% shareholder in the bank. Right. So they understood the bank. Uh, the bank was highly complementary and still is complementary with the portfolio of investments. Uh, and so when the opportunity came around, I think the investment team at ARC uh, was very well positioned to make an informed decision on, on taking up uh, the rest of the position there. So, so we were fortunate in that regard. But, you know, these things always come with, with very interesting stories. And, and this one is certainly not short of it. But I think like anything in business, right? Yes, it's about competence and it's about foresight and it's about making the right decisions. To be frank about it, that you need good timing and you need a bit of good fortune and you had that. 
How important is it to get um, VCs backing companies? And, and where I'm going there, I mean, you mentioned corporate venturing, and if I think about some, you know, and you'll know Louis Gehring, for example, I was chatting with him the other day, and he says, hardly any companies in South Africa are driving corporate venturing. And we have this, therefore, this this kind of structure where when you try to tie up as a, as a fintech or any startup with a large organization, you tend to get subsumed and, and squashed by them. All of the things that made you great get killed. Um, as they try to go and bring you into the in the mothership, whereas you look at Silicon Valley, where you've got venture capital or even corporate venturing, you are given huge amounts of freedom. You get a massive amount of support. They really buy into the purpose. Yes, it's important that you show signs that your product has a market fit, and if that works, they're, they're, but they're less worried about the short term. They're very much saying, look, it's a five to ten year hypergrowth strategy we're looking for. So the markers and and our tolerance for failure is a very different um, scenario. That that's my sort of impression. But was that the reality? Did you find it's been hugely beneficial um, having a venture capital organization behind you to give you the freedom to do what you want to do? Yeah, so let, let me just take a step back and just reflect for a second on your on your observations when it comes to corporate venturing. You know, I, I had the great privilege early on in my career to work with Louis Fierum, who in my opinion is one of the one of the best corporate venturing practitioners in the country. And and one of the privileges I had was to appreciate and experience firsthand the correlation between when a corporate venture works and when it doesn't work. And ultimately, it comes down to how you govern that new venture in the existing large corporate. And the challenge you have, right, why these things fail so rapidly and such, at such high volumes is because, in my view, the corporate has a specific uh, risk appetite, mm. right? And they've got a going concern that, in some instances, makes money despite itself. Um, because they have got something very special in that, and that special ingredient is called momentum. And when you pursue a new venture, it has a totally different risk profile, and you need to manage it very differently. If you put it into the mainstream, uh, it will get consumed. So, you know, as we, as we had the opportunity to create these various ventures through Deloitte uh, for corporates, uh, we managed to, to, to make this correlation. So that's the first point. The second point is that venture capital, private equity, and growth capital in this country is a much smaller segment than what it is in some of these uh, mature markets. Um, we, we, were, we were fortunate because African Rainbow Capital is actually an investment company and had a track record, had, had uh, investments at the time. Uh, about 40 or so investments, understood the sector. They tough on us, and they have to be, but they're equally empowering, and they know and they know where uh, that line is. So I've, I found it overall an absolute privilege working with the team at African Rainbow Capital, uh, as well as with this, the, the, the other teams we have through the diversification of our shareholder base now. You mentioned purpose. What is uh, Time Bank's purpose? And when you were having the conversation, you know, with African Rainbow Capital, how important was it in terms of discussing the purpose as a key part of their decision making? Yeah, I think I think it was absolutely central. You know, um, yes, what we are doing at, on the face of it is we are building a new challenger bank, right, to disrupt other banks. 
and become a profitable, thriving enterprise. But that's that's really the outcome. That's that's not not that's not the purpose. Right? The purpose of Time Bank is to bring about systemic reform to the banking sector. Now, I, I often tell stories of how um, there are so many South Africans, right, that have this unbelievable human potential, but just don't have the opportunity. People are not looking to be saved. They don't want to be saved. How dare we think that we are here to save people, right? We are here to provide tools and to provide opportunities for people to flourish. Mm. And, and, and in South Africa, you've got a particularly challenging situation. It's a dichotomy between those who have affordable and dignified access to financial services and those that don't. And I'm not talking around class lines. I'm not talking about social demographic lines. There, there are people across these lines that, for example, are unhappy with their service. So you will see in South Africa, the banking sector is notorious for having incredibly low net promoter scores, which in my view is the ultimate measure of, of satisfaction. So, so really the purpose was around bringing about this reform, but by innovating. Because you, you cannot be a me too, you cannot do things slightly better than the competition to break through and to become a scaled player. You know, it, it's a different argument, I think, if you want to become a niche player. But, but, uh, but we certainly didn't set out to do that. That's why if you look at our business model, the fact that we're incredibly um, partnership-driven uh, and partnership-centric, it is to unlock that scale. So it was pivotal in those conversations, but I think there was already a meeting of the minds before, before that transition from Commonwealth Bank. Does that then translate into the metrics that they judge you by? I think back to the conversations from other guests we've had on this series, um, particularly in the kind of fintech space. So I think about Charles Savage with Easy Equities. Last month, we were chatting with Spot Money. Andre Hugo, we started off, I think, the first or the second episode. Uh, we were doing uh, Envil Bank with their chairman, uh, Craig Bond. So in every single case, when I've chatted with the CEOs on a fintech startup, it's always been about purpose. It's always been about the, the kind of the backing that they've had has allowed them to take risk. And it's never been anything about profit metrics. Whereas the big banks are sitting there with the shareholders return on risk weighted assets and we're having to get a certain amount of margin and cross subsidization, this, that and the other. Everything's very historically financially driven um, from a shareholder perspective. Have you found that your shareholders are purposeful in the way that you describe? So, for example, number one on the list is net promoter score. They want to go and see your clients referring you to other clients and they have that belief. Therefore, if you see good metrics in those types of uh, spaces, that the profits and the growth will come. Yeah, I, you know, and, and this is where I got to channel the banker in me as well. You know, the reality is that as purposeful as we are, the bank has to be strong financially. Um, and there are all sorts of reasons for that. So the, the important thing to realize, and I think you made this point, Colin, is that you have very specific, call it purpose metrics that are actually lead indicators of profitability. So we measure at both of those levels and we are held accountable at both of those levels. What there is, is there's a very explicit and intrinsic understanding that what isn't acceptable, right, is, is trying to maximize 
for short-term games if there's even such a co concept, right? At the expense of long-term sustainable impact and therefore profitability. So I never see impact divorced from commercial outcomes. I think the two things are inextricably linked. Um, the one thing leads to the other and they have to coexist. You know, if, if you cannot be commercially strong, there's no way you're going to have a sustainable impact. If you can't make a sustainable impact to the lives of others, there's no ways you are going to be commercially sustainably viable as well. All right. So that, that gives me four differences to incumbents already in terms of the way that you're focusing. Lead indicators. So many times in the big organizations, it's more about maintaining the historical revenues, the purpose driven uh, focus thinking for the long term and being willing to short term uh, goals and profits to go and achieve long term results and then alignment with your investors, which is particularly difficult when you're trying to innovate in an actual incumbent. One of the other things that if anyone that's been following you is really, really clear that you do a lot better than most other organizations. And this goes well beyond financial services. You partner um, with non-competing organizations. And I think the one that springs to mind is the uh, the partnership with Pick and Pay. Can you, could you talk about that? And then let's dig into you know how it started. It's a genius idea um, and the sort of mutual benefits you're both getting out of it. Yeah, I mean, this is absolutely pivotal to, to our business model. So, you know, and, and I'll start by saying that I'm not the world's best ideator, but I'm a very good learner. And so I like burgling ideas from, from other things I study and observe, right? And really that concept came from what we call agency banking that were really dominant models uh, in East Africa, Southeast Asia, uh, and, and parts of South America. And, and really it's, it's predicated on building a scale business in an emerging economy. Now, when you want to build a scale business in an emerging economy, you cannot go digital only, in my view, right? unless you want to become a niche player, because the volume of cash transactions is still over 60%. And as South Africans, we still like to purchase in the physical world, right? E-commerce transactions, by way of illustration, is what 2% of all transactions, growing at the CAGO of 15-20%. But it's never going to be above 50% in the foreseeable future. So, so this hybrid model was absolutely critical. And it so happened that we had a pretty existing relationship with Pick and Pay. But even before then, when we conceived this partnership, we knew the power that Pick and Pay and Boxer could bring in terms of this hybrid model. Physical distribution, right? High footfall. Uh, you can facilitate deposits and withdrawals in real time and at ultra low cost at these still points, which means you're able to usher. You've got a mechanism of nudging the customer from the physical to the digital world, right? Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a very popular Sufi saying you can only walk from where you stand, right? So you can't take people from cash into cardless by way of example, right? Without playing that intermediate role and helping them along that customer journey. So that's the one, that's the one aspect. The other aspect, we obviously augment that infrastructure with um, what I think is world-class technology and, and process, which is this kiosk technology that allows for paperless onboarding uh, in less than five minutes. 
uh, as well as the dispensing of a, of a debit card that's immediately live and personalized within the monitor. So distribution is obviously a very important element of that, but we also look for other attributes when we pursue partnerships, right? The one is data and the ability to access a propriety alternative forms of data that we can use for not only uh, process optimization opportunities, but also for much more pinpointed lending. It's absolutely critical to us. And the relationship with Pick and Pay, you know, who has a smart shopper base, a loyal smart shopper base of, of what's now probably over 8, 8 million customers was absolutely key to, to that partnership. And then there are other things, Colin, for example, brand affinity as a new player, you've got to find new and interesting ways of building a brand because you don't have, you know, the, the marketing budgets of a billion rand plus. Um, and by latching yourself onto partners who, who are highly credible, um, who have brands that are revered by consumers like Pick and Pay has, is a clever way of, of, of overcoming that challenge. So brand affinity was, was absolutely crucial as well. So if you look at the confluence of all of those factors, right, it made absolute sense for us to go into this partnership with Boxer and Pick and Pay. That's a very special partnership to us. Uh, it's very pivotal to our business model and it laid the foundations for other partnerships with the Fushini Group, uh, the Zion Christian Church, uh, and so on. So tell me, I understand how the partnership works for you because cash management is incredibly expensive. So moving cash from A to B, I don't think people realize just how expensive distributing cash is. I think if all the banks were allowed to legally to go and close all their branches and stop having to handle cash, they'd probably sign that off um, immediately. It's incredibly expensive. It can be dangerous. Then you think about the footprint that so you've managed. So th this deal cheapens that issue for you as you partner with a supermarket chain. You get, as you said, the foot traffic that's walking through the stores so you can pick up on. You get that lovely brand affinity where there's all the customers and pick and pay. They're saying, we like this brand and therefore we're looking at time and saying there's an association, they must be good. So we're gonna go and give it a go. So it's really clear the benefits that you get. What are the benefits that your partner pick and pay get in this example? Yeah, so in, the, in this particular example, uh, there's a few very important benefits. So, so the one is if you, if you look at pick and pay smart shopper base, right? I mean, that pick and pay, and especially through its boxer brand more recently, has been expanding rapidly. So there's real organic growth uh, in their retail business model. But by virtue of our partnership with them, we've increased their um, smart shopper loyalty base, for example, by millions of customers. Right? So it's not only that we are benefiting from their footfall, we are also driving customers into their environment and onto their loyalty platform. So that's incredibly valuable. There's a net effect on cash handling. Cash handling costs retailers an absolute fortune along with merchant service fees on card acquiring. And it really aggravates uh, retailers. Because of the net effects of cash handling, we are actually reducing cash in those environments, which is a massive cost benefit to them as well. So that's the second piece. But I think more important, most importantly, this is about recognizing that we're living in the era of uh, the convergence of industries, right? So retailers have two options. If they want to get into financial services, they can, they can partner or they can do it themselves under their own brand. 
Um, and it so happened in this particular instance, there was a meeting of minds to say that the most economically viable route uh, to achieve a financial services strategy was to partner with us to bring about this enriched uh, retail proposition. It's, it's very similar, at least in concept, to what we're doing with, uh, for example, the Fushini Group now. Yeah, so I'm assuming the Fuccini group will be a, a similar model. But you said the um, Zion Christian Church, that's fascinating. Um, that's not something I pick up on too often with companies where you're going something as unique, I suppose, as a church group. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, so just for some, some, for some background, the ZCC is, to the best of my knowledge, the largest church group in certainly in South Africa, if not South Saharan Africa. They have... 12 million members, 10 million of which are in South Africa, about 6 million of which qualify for bank account and other banking products. So there's a massive captive base that is immensely loyal to the church. So that's the first benefit, just being able to grow into that base makes, makes huge sense for us. The, the second thing here is that from their perspective, the Design Christian Church has been looking for ways to digitize some of their processes. Right? So what we've deployed in that environment is a mobile kiosk. Right? You know, by the way, we've had nine prototypes of our kiosk and three industrial versions. Right? I, wanted, I um, wanted to ask about that. We'll come on to that straight or you can continue straight in. I want to know how you built this kiosk. In a, in a space of two and a half years, right? Less even. Now, this version of the kiosk is, is a mobile kiosk that fits into a ruggedized suitcase, can withstand vibrations, has better signal, right? is able to withstand dust and heat, and is ideal suited to the ZCC environment. But we dispense co-branded cards that they actually branded ZCM, powered by time. But that card doubles as a membership card. Right. So, so, so the ZCC over time, as an analog business, is able to digitize parts of its process, the important parts, by partnering with us. So, so that was really important. I'll also mention that the economics of that, which um, I don't want to get into detail, but the economics of that relationship means that we don't carry any of the distribution costs. So mm -hmm. from a commercial perspective, any revenues that we generate from the you know, really goes goes to the bottom line, and it's all it's all upside. Um, unfortunately, because of COVID, and, and I've got immense respect for how the church has supported the country's efforts to to combat coronavirus, has not been able to gather. So the volumes have been low, but there will come a day when when that situation will ch change, and the church will be able to gather more frequently in larger groups, and we'll see that benefit coming through. You mentioned there's two million church members outside of South Africa, which um, makes me think about whether you've got plans to start growing outside of South Africa. In fact, uh, one of your namesakes here, Tariq Adams, is just asking a question if you want to get outside of South Africa. And when might that start to happen? Because it's such a good model. It feels like the world needs it. Yeah, that's, that's already started. So our sister company, Time Global, which is the vehicle that will take the time brand to uh, other selected markets, has already secured a banking license uh, in the Philippines. 
and we are looking at other markets, but it's steady as she goes for now because um, you got to really entrench yourself and prove the business models in those markets. Every market has its own idiosyncrasies, its own subtleties that you have to overcome. Now, I think it's probably worthwhile sharing a little bit like why the Philippines, <laughs> right? And, and what is the decision-making framework uh, that we used to go there? So there's about two or three top-level criteria that, that we always consider when it comes to new markets. So the first criteria is really around some of the structural attributes of that market, right? So if you look at the Philippines, very different to South Africa, but has a lot of similarities, right? So they've also got a strong, albeit far less concentrated retail structure, which means we can deploy is this kiosk technology and we can bring to life this hybrid model in that market. Unlike South Africa, it's massively unbanked, okay? Which about 20% of that population is banked. And that is, creates its own challenges, but it also creates massive opportunities because the market is far less crowded, although there are quite a few um, digital banking players that have been knocking on the door of that regulator now. But the other thing is that what's interesting to note is that the uh, P2P payments, particularly of wallet platforms, is really prominent uh, in that market. Um, and that's a nice user experience that we can piggyback off you know, uh, and get traction. So that's the one thing, structural market attributes. The second thing is we will not consider a market that does not have a progressive regulatory regime. Uh, particularly when it comes to two things. The one is ID verification and digital ID verification of customers. If anyone requires a wet signature or a piece of paper in that value chain, that's an immediate uh, stumbling block for us. The, the second very important consideration here is cloud and the regulator's attitude towards hosting banks uh, in cloud, particularly around data integrity, data sovereignty, and so on. And then the last criteria is having a very strong in-country partner, right? We, our, our sister company, Time Global, cannot be, cannot know all markets, but understands digital banking well and needs to play to that strength. But we need very strong in-country partners that can deal with the in-country dynamics, like consumer adoption, like distribution, like the relationships with regulatory authorities, and so on. So, so it's a very clear framework that we apply. Um, and, and then, like I said, you know, steady as she goes, you, you can't roll out to six countries, you know, in, in a space of a year or two. It's, it's, it's not responsible. So I just, that's another note that I've just made there as I'm listing where I see these differentiators from the incumbents. And I thought that was interesting, this narrow focus. So if, if something doesn't fit into your digital model, not interested. You're not trying to be a, a universal bank, a jack of all trades and a master of none. It's going to be digital. It's not going to have wet signatures. And therefore, if that doesn't work either for the customer base or the regulators or uh, the community, that there's just not going to be an interesting opportunity for time. And I think that's so interesting because a lot of the big organizations try to solve these issues to make everyone happy and end up making no one happy because they're not particularly good at um, anything in particular. The other one that I picked up would go back now was you, you've rolled out the machine, uh, your kiosk, or you've done nine 
sort of variations in a year or two. That's rapid development in terms of the cycle. What was the story behind the kiosk? I'm, I'm sort of imagining speak to someone like Huawei, would uh, fly over to Shenzhen, try to find some manufacturers and, and work together to develop a spec. And two months later, there you go. Is that how it happened? Yeah, I, I, I wish it was that simple, you know. Again, you know, I come back to to, to that little introductory story where, where, where this journey started in 2007 at another bank. The precursor to this, at least conceptually, was having um, agents out in field that were all KYC accredited, incredibly expensive model that were opening up bank accounts for customers by issuing SIM cards, right? Where the, where, where, where the application was loaded onto. So it wasn't network agnostic, it was with a telco. And that's where this thing had its genesis, right? And what we then said was, well, how do we, and this was over years, how do we make this a more digital process, right? So we had various contraptions. We had like a, you know, at some point we call it the time machine, right? Where we had a little contraption that we put inside um, pick and pay stores at the time that an operator could take a photo of the ID, we would send it to the back office and we would have eyeballs, basically KYC customers. That's not a digital process, but this was years ago. To eventually we evolved uh, into what we have now, which is, you know, not only in my, in my opinion, a wonderful example of process innovation, because we often think about the technology how hardware, software, middleware comes together to bring about this customer experience. But ultimately, it's about process innovation. It's about doing things differently. It's about interpreting legislative changes in a way that's beneficial for the customer whilst not introducing a risk posture that will make anyone uncomfortable. And, and then the other thing that you don't see is the thousands of thousands of little implementation lessons we learned along the way. And, and I'll give you a few examples for what they were, right? Some of them are really rudimentary. Like, you know, in, in, in grocery stores, they've got these uh, industrial uh, floor polishers. Mm. Now, each time that floor polisher came by and knocked the kiosk, our cards, our debit cards would get misaligned. And there was a little aperture at the bottom that passed the ultraviolet light to be able to read this barcode, which is the unique identifier for the card. And whenever these cards got dislodged, the entire process stopped. Yeah. And so what we did there is we, we just put in a splitter. A splitter is a fancy word for a piece of plastic that would prevent the cards from dislodging, right? All the way to the fact that we discovered this all in the early days of the implementation of the existing kiosk inside pick and burn boxes stores. No, we discovered that we were on some sort of an inappropriate data plan with one of the network providers for connectivity. And during particular times of day, you would have data consumption spiking and spiking to the point where it pushed us out of bundle and the MNO cut us off and we yeah. lost connectivity. And what exacerbated that poor experience was the customer got through halfway. So that we, we had a profile created for them on our system. But then they couldn't repeat the process because we, we had a like a patient onboarding process that said, if you got a profile, now you can't ever become a customer. <laughs> right? 
So we not only needed to fix that data plan by picking up the phone and calling one of the MNOs, right? But we also had to undertake major um, open heart surgery on that onboarding process to get it, you know. And and I mean, this is this is the reality of entrepreneurship, right? Is what I said. Like, you think you're the master of your own destiny, right? But you need to have the humility to say that there are other forces at play, right? That 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 will govern that outcome. You just need to make sure that you're applying yourself properly. I love the sound of this because I know this. Uh, other people are going, "Oh my God, this is a nightmare." Um, I love the sound of it because if you're going to do something innovative, there's going to be mistakes. You can't predict, you know, the way that humans are going to interact. There's a thousand and one things that always break. And I'm always surprised that, you know, large organizations take an incredibly long time to try to roll out something which they think is perfect. It's never perfect. It's always terrible because they took so long and the market has it had moved. And, and time and again, you see that the more nimble ones who are willing to take risk to roll it out it didn't quite work the way we wanted but the customer feedback was instant we now fix we iterate or even block it and stop it and start again if it was completely awful and yet the customers still have an affinity with the brand as long as you're open and transparent with them they come back is that your experience <laughs> it, it is but i do I, I think it's important that we sort of unpack a really a crucial principle point here that it's it's, it is about risk-taking and calculated risk-taking. I mean, I often tell people, you know, entrepreneurship. An entrepreneur is ultimately someone who assesses risk, right? Makes a risk-based decision and takes risk. An entrepreneur is not a swashbuckling chevalier that yeah. is irresponsible in how they behave, right? Um, so, so risk-taking and risk assessment is, is absolutely crucial. But over and above that is like you actually need the capability, right? So you actually need the technology and data stack. And I'm really proud of what we built there because it's something that's scalable. It's easily configurable. You know, at present moment, we do about 8 to 10 production deployments every day. We do between about 200 production, fully tested, pen-tested, you know, stage-tested production deployments every month. A lot of them are features and functions, but some of them are just enhancements as well. So you actually need the technology and data stack to do this. And then you need the culture, right? And you need the way of work in order to bring, in order to, 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 to operate that way. Because it's one thing getting customer feedback it's another thing being able to act on it quite rapidly. So, so we're not perfect, but I do think that the ability to move very quickly, to be responsive, to make decisions really quickly is at the heart of what I would call our ability to compete with large incumbents that have been around for 20 to 180 years. Yeah. Good question here from uh, Manette Besson, and um, I'm going to extend on it as well. How difficult was it to build behavioral models for the transaction monitoring that you do? Obviously, transaction monitoring is critical for you, whether it's uh, with regard to financial crime or behavioral analysts in terms of better servicing your customers or servicing the partnerships that you've got uh, with the picks and pe pick and pays of the world. So I'm guessing that you're starting to investigate using AI and other algorithms in this space where are you on that journey and, and and how do you go about doing it do you sort of insource the people you've got your own computer scientists or is it all outsourced to you know third parties to help you on that journey yeah look i say this with with, with humility that 
data analytics is a lot more, in my view, about getting access to the data than it is about analyzing and deploying models. And, and the reason for this is like many people can, many organizations can hire very smart scientists and analysts, but it is sort of a futile exercise if they spend half their time scratching around in the mud, looking for the data, decomposing file formats to get it into the right shape and so on. So we've, we've benefited from, from the fact that we don't have legacy, which means that we've got a fresh, modern, uber-modern data stack, but we've got the ability to pipe off events of all our applications, okay? Now, if you think about that, the fact that you're not able to capture all your internal data is already a massive competitive advantage, but because we're so heavily API-driven, right, we're able to capture information of other platforms as well. Um, obviously, with customer consent and so on, it goes without, without saying. And if you throw that all into an equation, you can achieve incredibly powerful things. So, for example, the way we onboard customers, right, we, we do use a, a machine. I'm sort of a bit of a nerd, so I distinguish very clearly between machines and, and AI. Uh, we do use a machine to, for example, determine, you know, within strict, the strict KYC laws that we have, the, the address of a customer. That's why we don't ask for customers to produce or to take photographs of the proof of address, right? Once that customer is onboarded, right, then we are able to send them a welcome pack that is customized based on various parameters that we consider. And that customization improves with time because the machine actually learns. And then the next step in the journey is that once the customer has been welcomed and once they've deposited money and they've done their first transactions, how do you then interact with them to provide them with a journey that's most fit for purpose, right? And this is where we are learning. Um, we are using machines and we are actually auditing those machines as well. But we cannot let these things run riot yet because we just are in the early stages of our understanding our customers. But one of the benefits here, for example, is that we're able to journey and nudge a customer, some customers, I would say, from the cash world into the digital world. So what you see is you see this migration of customers that are very um, dominant cash users, right? And over time, they become uh, better and more vibrant users of our electronic, electronic platforms. So that's on the behavioral side. We also use behavioral techniques to um, on the risk side of things, you know, um, whether, whether it is cybersecurity, whether it is anti-fun crime, uh, or whether it is anti-fraud. What's your view on uh, crypto? This one from Raymond Paolo. Hey, Raymond, what's your view on crypto? And then straight off the back of that as well, let's do a two at once, is your um, view on where sovereign identity is going, another important uh, progression that's uh, using blockchain potentially to try to um, allow us to take back control of our information. But let's start there. What's your you know, view on, on crypto and the impact for time? You know, I'll respond to both of these in very general terms. You know, crypto is fast emerging as an alternative asset. Okay. If you look at it from an investor's perspective, right? There's... But what about as a transactional currency? 
Yeah, so I have my reservations right now. Never say never. Never say never because the world is fast evolving and we don't fully understand these technologies yet and we don't understand where they're going. Um, what I would like to see, I would like to see a maturation of the anti-money laundering controls and consistent standards around that, which in part goes against some of the fundamental processes or the fundamental principles of decentralized finance, right? So I would like I would like to see a maturation there. We're following it very closely. You know, we, we are open-minded about this. And I would also like to see a maturation of interoperability uh, and where that goes. Um, yeah, but, but it's something we watch closely. And sovereign identity. Um, I was chatting with um, a lot of people on the call. We'll know him, Andy Baker, ex-ABSA and, and now off to AWS. And he was just chatting about how sovereign identity is potentially going to be a massive, massive, um, you know, um, almost as important as the fabric of the internet in how we inter interact with each other. My identity, I'm not Colin, but I'm a thousand and one different things. I've got an age, I've got a health profile, I've got a banking profile, a spending profile, a relationship profile, a library card, a driving license. You've got a million and one different identities. And the idea of using the encrypted blockchain technology so that I can allow you as a supplier to me, a bank, to access certain parts of that as I determine, and not forever, just at distinct moments in time in a transaction sounded appealing. Have, have you guys been thinking about that, how that could you know, be something that you want to investigate? I think at this, this, at this stage, we obviously got our hands full with, with what's in front of us, but you've got to look close, see far. You know, I, I think this is, some, this is an area that uh, we don't have distinct plans for right now, but we can't fall behind the curve a lot will depend on on how the the regulator approaches this. So I think it's really early days, uh, and it's really early days for us where this is concerned. Another one which I think you'll like is how do you go through the decision making process on a new idea, a new product or service? So so let's use a uh, fictional um, idea. Let's take it um, steal an idea from Klarna where you come up with this idea about releasing a product where uh, people can go online to a shop, buy an item. And immediately, with no background credit check, they'll be redirected to a site where they can pay over two or three months. And the actual um, uh, the, the supplier, the shop, will take on the five, six, seven percent, whatever it might be for the charging structure so that you're covering the default risk and the provider of that service, the bank can actually make a profit. So mm. <laughs> I'm mm. interested in this one because I've got a suspicion you're doing something similar. But how do you go through the process of an idea like yeah. that? To say, yes, let's investigate and release it. And how quickly do you actually manage to get it into um, execution? Yeah. So it's more than a suspicion. We've actually launched our buy now, pay later product called More Time. It's available with, with at over a thousand stores and, and so forth, and, and, and it will continue to grow. You know, how we made that decision, I mean, obviously we looked at trends overseas, right? Yeah. But also we looked at where the business is. So, so what we do is we've got a commercial framework that assesses risk-adjusted revenues, not lifetime value, risk-adjusted revenues, but the issue here is how you risk adjust, right? <laughs> and the subjectivity in that process. And so it's a lot about overlaying that framework with good instincts and understanding of the business, understanding of the market. So it's not entirely scientific process. What we did in that particular instance is that we looked where um, the bank is, right? We, we are a bank that is still driving towards commercial upside. We looked at the market, we saw a heavily over-indebted market, 
uh, ex, you know, worsened by coronavirus. And we said it would make absolute sense for us to get into a, uh, into a retail asset that is short in tenure, uh, small in size. We can turn it off our balance sheets very quickly. We'll get to understand expected credit losses in the space of 60 days. You know, it's not capital intense. You don't have to, you, yes, you risk weighted, but because you're turning it off, you don't have to hold a lot of capital and so on and so forth. So, so that's how we approach that. But I think culture is really important here, right? So, so, so we've got very strong values in the organization. No, we don't put it in a plaque in the office. Sometimes those things aggravate us. I've seen it in large organizations. But we've got heuristics uh, and expressions of those values. So, for example, we've got something along the lines of uh, we debate decisions as a team. Individuals make the decisions. And the individual is held accountable for the decision, not a committee. Right? We've also got a heuristic that says we design for the 80%, not the 0.08%. And automatically, that means that you're not all things to all people. You, you exclude a lot because... You just can't get to it, and it's not where the opportunities are for a new bank. Hope that how, helps you. <laughs> well, let's, let's just so one one more thing on that. How long did that take to go from the idea of the payment mechanism to the release? And yes, you've got to take some risk. Do you actually run it with you know a, a sort of like a, a beta, a very uh, small number of people? Yeah. Just you know, so so this is the kind of sprint, quick release. Google, let's just try it. Let's see what happens. Very small set, couple of thousand. Terrible, throw it away, iterate. Actually, it's working. We've done two now. We've learned from what's going on, and now we can go. And or do you go the other way, which a lot do, which you sort of spend a lot of time and then try to release it to everyone with a, a reasonably um, thought-through product. No, we, we 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 try to not try. We in fact we got, we got it out. I can't remember the time frame, but but it it was in a space of months. Okay, um, and not very go, very much idea. Can we get this out and test it on clients? And if we can do it, it's a no brainer. Let's do it. Get the feedback right, um, because your risk is incredibly limited with a small sample size. Right, so we use white labeling a lot. Uh, we use white lists. Sorry, white lists a lot. We um, and and we're continuously getting that feedback. Some of the things have much longer deployment cycles, like payment uh, payment rails, right? But this is not one of them, right? And we're con continuously making improvements. Uh, last question for me, and then uh, I'm sure KT would like to ask you something as well. Um, customer service. Couple of questions coming in from different angles, you know, on that. How how do you go about trying to make sure that you can provide good quality customer service when you have no branches, and you don't therefore have the normal mechanism for people to go and actually make contact with time when they have issues? Because there's always going to be issues. It doesn't matter what you're doing with that number of people. Not everything yeah. can work perfectly all the time. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very good question. So this is something we continuously uh, focus on and improve upon um, all the time. Now, I, I would say the first principle is we try and minimize our issues, right? So we've got this technology principle in the business, which is shift left. So when things do break, fix that source. Don't cobble together manual processes and lots of human beings because that leads to error, different points of failure and so on. Sometimes we have to do that temporarily but to always go back to the source and fix it. We always look to continuously automate, but when the digital process does break down, right, they have to reach out to a human being. And our, our primary uh, channel for that now, although we've got investors inside pick and pay and boxes stores, is the call center. And if you look at where the call center was three years ago, right, 
there were a few handful of issues that a call center could, agent could actually resolve on the first call. That, is, that has gone up to about 100 things that they can actually solve on the first call. So we try and limit the escalation uh, that goes into the back office around some of these things. But it's an area that got con gets continuous focus. Now, I, I am proud of the fact that our net promoter score is the highest in the country. We don't rest on our laurels because we know that the standards that consumers have of new entrants is simply higher than for, for incumbents that have been around so long. So we're continuously improving on, on that. Yeah. That one, Tariq, do you think the incumbents are scared of the likes of you and some of the other uh, neo and fintech banks? And actually, what are you most scared about over the next couple of years, whether it be crypto, decentralized finance, the incumbents, telcos, something which I haven't mentioned? Yeah, Katie, you know, I, I, you know, I, I can't speak on behalf of the other banks. Um, I can just go what, what's out in the public domain. And I think that if you look at back at the history of evolution of financial services in this country, mm -hmm. that you have had a couple of players that have really shaken up the market. So I can only imagine, and I go on assumption here, that, that, mm -hmm. that there is concern. You know, we must not underestimate the large incumbents. They have something that they've built over many years, and that's, in, that's trust. But consumers are often aggravated by the levels of service that they get. You know, I mentioned these net promoter schools are notoriously low in South Africa, and that creates a massive opportunity uh, to challenge and to win market share and to create new market share as well, right? Mm -hmm. And then the flip side of that, Colin, is that, you know, I would say that modern-day strategy is far less about trying to predict the future and a lot more about responding, right? So make sure that your organization is following what's going on, is actively engaging in some of these competitive platforms uh, and keeping an open mind to it, right? Um, but also keeping an open mind to optionality for yourself. So I think all of those things are threatening. I would throw in embedded finance, I would throw in embedded fintech, other digital banks, the large incumbents, retailers, are all threatening for different reasons. And we just don't have the time to unpack it. But I, but I think it is about being able to, to observe and, and respond, you know. Um, and who knows, the, you know, Time Bank's platform might evolve as well with time, right? So it might start with partnerships, but in 10 years from now, it might look very different to what we have now. I, I, I simply don't know. If you enjoyed this episode on the power of partnerships with TimeBank CEO Terry Kiran and myself, then do check out my website. You'll find more blogs and vlogs from my interviews with business leaders from all around the world. And you'll also be able to sign up to all of my upcoming fireside chats. Thanks again to Huawei for sponsoring this series on the future of finance. It really would not have been possible without you. So until next time, whatever you're doing, please stay safe. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.